This is The Guardian. Today, the final part of the Uber files. We meet one of the London drivers who took on Uber and forced it to change. They're all Friday, but Good Friday, Second Friday, Third really? Friday. Really? <laughs> it's a Friday night, and again, I'm in a car. But not in France this time. I'm in London. Over the past couple of days, we've been reporting on how, in just a few years, a tech company in San Francisco helped to create a whole new industry and a whole new kind of worker. Uber had billions of dollars at its disposal and used that money to ram itself into one city after another, selling drivers a dream, one where they were earning much more and customers paying much less than would ever be sustainable. Uber knew it couldn't last, but the point was just to grow whatever it took as quickly as possible. At the heart of this model was this premise that drivers didn't work for Uber. They were independent contractors, people the company didn't have to pay pensions, sick leave or holidays. For Uber, billions of dollars depended on this way of doing things. There was just one hitch in the plan. The drivers. In many countries, they fought back. Today, in the last of our series on the Uber files, a massive leak of internal documents from inside the company the story of the people who those documents often refer to as supply, the drivers, the ones living with the legacy, the way Uber took over the world, and who were fighting to make the gig economy that we all live in now a more decent place. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the Uber Files, part three, the drivers. I was born in Somalia, uh, Brava, 250 kilometers from the capital. Uh, people over there, they speak completely different language. They don't speak Somali. They speak a language called Bravanese. And it's unique. Only in that city, in the whole Somalia, the people speak completely different language. Abdurzak Hadi is an Uber driver in London. He drives a Prius, one that looks like it's ready for anything, stocked with perfumes, Dettol spray, wet wipes, and a key ring on the dash that says, home is where dad is. If you've used Uber in London sometime since 2014, Hadi may have driven you around. What brought you eventually to the UK? The civil war, which actually broke in Somalia, and us being a minority, even though we stayed neutral, we didn't take no arms, and we were collateral damage. Everybody picked on us simple as that. I mean, our city was actually taken by a different rebel group at a different time, and we suffered at the hands of all of them. Do you remember much of, of the war yourself when it was happening? I remember the war very well. My early uh, teens, probably 13, 14. The other day I was telling my children about the war. You know, when I left Somalia, I was scared to sleep without a light off. It's only recent that I actually managed to sleep without a light. Did you come here with your family? No, I... You were on your own as a, as a 13, 14-year-old? It was tough. I mean, I didn't speak a word of English. My, you know, educational background was in Arabic, so I could read Arabic, but I couldn't read any Latin. I couldn't even actually, you know, read ABCD. I couldn't even write my name in English. It's as simple as that. Many years later, 
Now you live in the UK, you're married here, you've got children here. Tell me a bit about your family. We married me and my wife in 2006. We had a boy a year later. We had a daughter. But there was a bumpy ride along the way. Our son actually got diagnosed with leukemia. Oh, God. 31st December 2010. The days that you have a nightmare, you'll never forget them. Uh, he got cured and he kept coming back. Uh, he had the best treatment that he could ever have. He was in Great Ormond Street. He struggled with it. I mean, they treat him, he would respond to treatment, nothing. You'll see him like, everything is fine. And then after the treatment, probably a couple of months later, he would relap. Four years after Hadi's son, Muhammad was first diagnosed, Hadi was driving a minicab, and the industry was about to be transformed. The ride-hailing company, Uber, was spreading around the world, and in 2014, it came across Hadi's radar. How did you first hear about Uber, about this new service? From other drivers, because it was the phenomenon at that time. Everybody was immigrating from their local companies, local minicab, to Uber. Why was it appealing to you as a minicab driver? The reason it was appealing to me is like, if I get a job, I used to live in Golders Green, and I worked in a cab not far away from So if I get a job coming to London, the chances of me going back you know, with a job, uh, it's almost 1% or almost zero. But with this, I could go anywhere in London, and I would I'd still pick up a customer from there, and I'll be moving all day. Where over there... You could drop someone any part of London, but then you'll have to go back all the way back empty to your local office. So the appealing part of this was that wherever you are, you'll get a job. It sounded like it was win-win. At the beginning, it was win-win for both for passengers. And also, the security you had with Uber at the time that they had, every job was booked through a credit card. You didn't need to handle cash, where with the local office, you handle cash. Sometimes you have a customer who wouldn't pay you or run away or would pay you, you know, less. You had those occasions, but they're quite rare. But then you'll always have to look at your shoulder. You never trusted your customers in that sense. But with Uber, customer would come into your car all the way. You need to confirm it's their name and their destination. And you could have a nice conversation, a nice chat. And majority of Londoners, you can have a nice conversation. And you drop them without caring whether they're going to pay you or they're not going to pay you. And, like, what did you need to, to make the shift? Because, like, in a minicab, you kind of had, you know, a specific vehicle and there was a kind of proper setup. In order to go and drive Uber, what did you need to get started? Nothing, because you're already a minicab driver. All what you needed is the app. You needed a smartphone. That's all. And at that time, you didn't even need a smartphone. Uber would give you a smartphone. Really? Yeah, so they would give you that and they would say to you, there you go. Do you remember when you first started driving for them? Like, do you remember what that felt like? Very well. I even remember my first customer. I was in my mom's house. I dropped uh, the little one because he was very close to his grandma at the time. It was Thursday. It was almost Easter holidays. So thinking like, let me try this. Put the app on. Boom. Pick up the first customer at uh, Squares Lane, the, the road of my mom's. And I'm thinking, wow. At the time, Uber was very popular with among the younger generation. 
and they were giving free rides so it was busy and they were giving people I think uh, 50 pounds to start with and if you bring someone you get 50 pounds and you bring someone so you'll have you could have a lot of credit and you can end up basically using all those rides sounds exciting it sounds like the vibe was really nice uh, the vibe was actually honey at that point honey yeah was it more than you were making at the minicab almost the same what I was making at the minicab but the point is you don't have to pull the eight or nine hours that you'll have to work on the day because the minicab the fares work actually quite good Uber when they started they were lower than actually the minicab but the point is the minicab you won't get a return journey so that makes it up within short period of time you, you know you could make the money As Hadi's son, Muhammad, became more ill, the family was spending more and more time in the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. And driving for Uber worked nicely for that. Majority of the time I was based in Great Ormond Street. At that time, Uber was the place where you'd want to work because I could be in Great Ormond Street and whenever, like, he's okay and whatever, we could spend a lot of time in Great Ormond Street and then I could just, you know, have my car downstairs parked, take the car and do a couple of runs and so on. We would also communicate, me and him, on the phone in between. I dropped the customer, talked to him, like, where I am. And he enjoyed those kind of, you know, explain to him, I'm in this place in London and so on. And, oh, I'm by the river now and whatever. Whenever I drop a customer, I would call him just to see if he wants me back or... Hmm. He said to me, but when are you coming? I said, you know, daddy has to buy you milk, you know. And when he grew up now, it's not milk anymore. Daddy has to buy you things you want, so let him work. That's how it was. Back in 2014, Hadi thought he had landed on a great new career. Okay, he had no control over what he charged people. And he'd sometimes get bad ratings that he felt were unfair, like someone was having a bad day and taking it out on him. And he was being managed by an algorithm that he didn't really understand. The money, though, that was great. But it was a mirage. Uber was using the billions of dollars it had attracted in investments to heavily subsidise its service documents we found in the Uber files give us a glimpse at just how much money Uber was burning back then. In Berlin, at one stage in 2014, Uber was charging customers a fare of about $2.20 per hour, but it was paying drivers nearly five times as much. In Madrid, around the same time, drivers were getting paid twice as much as what customers were being charged. It was ridiculous. The maths just didn't work. The idea was to get drivers driving and riders riding, and once the market was big enough, start squeezing. Less money for drivers and more expensive rides. Hadi didn't know that at the time, and it wasn't the first issue he noticed. I remember the first problem I had. I had uh, five customers who wanted to come in into my car. When I said to them, you know, like, the car is only licensed to carry four people, but they wouldn't accept it. And they were drunk, and they were throwing tantrums, mashed my door. I didn't know what to do. Normally, with your local cab, you would call them and explain to them. But here, okay, I have to step aside and write the message on what happened, and I had to communicate, and the communication was only writing. You don't know who you're writing to. Normally, Uber's responses are very, it's like copy and paste. Then after that, realize it's not actually people actually sitting there. It's actually the system and algorithm that's been designed like this and all in order to respond. The machine doesn't feel anything. How long were you driving before you started to feel that 
this wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Towards the end of 2014, Uber was very busy. It even became even busier because what happened in June of that year, when I started in April, June of that year, Black Cab, the traditional London cab, went on strike and they did demonstration at Trafalgar Square. Huge demonstration. Well, I'm at one corner of Trafalgar Square, just at the junction with uh, Whitehall, and behind me you can see uh, taxis have stopped there and all of the approach roads, uh, they've either stopped or traffic is moving very slowly. The radio would announce every half an hour the traffic. So they kept saying, Void Trafalgar Square, the Black Cab are demonstrating against American app company Uber. From Trafalgar Square to Parliament, thousands of London's Black Cab drivers block lanes in protest against the app-based car service Uber. So everybody was like, what's Uber? What's Uber? Everybody wanted to know. They kept announcing, avoid Uber, Uber, Uber. And they are protesting, as you see on your screen, against the launch of that Uber app. And that basically gave Uber huge PR. On that evening, Uber came up on the newspaper, front page advertising, giving people £20 vouchers. The night of the protest? Yes, night of the protest. So on that weekend, it was one of the busiest weekend, and it just carried on. And that meant there's no waiting time. You know, I'll get the job before even get the chance to drop the customer bang bang you're moving constantly so it was busy but then uber decided to you know a few months later to reduce the price down when we say to them okay but why are you reducing the price i mean they said oh uh, so that you, we could get more customers for you you don't have to you know you could be driving all the time we already are driving all the time but then the misery just carried on after that they kept dropping the prices down, adjusting the prices here, adjusting it differently. And after that, are we going to raise the commission to 25%? So then it's like now it's an eye-opener. You are not only basically want to eliminate your competitors. You, you actually, your long term here is also to squeeze the drivers as much as you can. So at the end of that first year, why did you keep driving? Why didn't you just say, enough of this, I'm going to go back to being a minicab driver? The jobs at the local company were actually disappearing. Now, you don't only have the younger generation are using it, then you've got the middle-aged people are using it, people over the age of 50, 60. Almost everybody has immigrated from there to here. My mom, 70-something, now she uses Uber. She knows how to order for the Uber, actually. And... As you were, as the prices were dropping, as the Uber commissions were growing, what was going on in your life? I mean, what was that doing to you and your family to have your financial situation made just a bit harder and just a bit harder by Uber? That meant now you're smelling the coffee, the honey is gone, now it's vinegar. But then what happened is, because you're not earning enough, you end up actually going to the state and asking for financial support. This cheap services that is being run by Uber is actually subsidized by the government indirectly. And how long into your time driving with Uber did you have to go to the government to get benefits? When did the money stop being enough for you to get by? By the end of that year, when things started to get tough and the fares were not actually going up, kept dropping. So you'll collect good amount of money at the end of the week, but then once you've trim all the expenses 
whatever you're left over with, it's basically not something you can sustain yourself with it. And how many hours were you working at the time? My hours varied because I was looking after my son. I couldn't work proper. Sometimes I would only work weekends. Did you ever go to someone in Uber and try to explain to them your situation? To say, is there some kind of sick pay or some way you can help me to get through this really difficult time? If I would have known, I really wanted to go at one point. I didn't know who to go to. Is there a phone call I could just pick up simply? Is there an email? Sometimes you have an issue and you address to Uber management. You never get any of the management to reply to you. So I didn't know who to turn up to and who you talk to talk to in Uber. When did you decide that rather than just accept that this was the way it was going to be, that you and other drivers needed to do something about it, needed to try to change this situation? Michael, I never accepted things and how they are. The whole movement started from traffic lights. Traffic lights? What would happen at traffic lights? You see, when you see a car, how I did recognize at that time that was an Uber car, they had an iPhone, as I said, I would look at it and I'll see, and I will just had my phone number written in a lot of paper and I'll throw it at them. So people would call you and say to them, how is work and how is the situation? Huh. Can we do something? What can we do? Can whatever? So that's how the whole movement started. So you would write a little message on paper, get to a traffic light, put your phone number on it and throw it to the driver next to you. Yeah. And it, what would the message say? Please call me, let's discuss about work and with my phone number. Paddy quickly discovered he wasn't the only driver who felt like the idea that he was self-employed, running his own business from his car, and that Uber was just helping him find customers, didn't make any sense. The same conversations were happening in McDonald's car parks, at meetings in church halls, that started small, but then began to attract more and more drivers. They felt like Uber dictated how much they were paid, It chose what jobs they were offered. In some cases, it locked them out of the app if they turned down too many rides. Uber said it was just a way to connect drivers and customers, just a platform. But it felt more like a boss, and not a particularly generous one. Some drivers said that some months, they were earning less than £5 an hour, less than the minimum wage, which, if you're self-employed, you can't do much about. But if Uber is recognised as your boss, means you're being underpaid. What was your goal from this organising? What were you hoping to do by speaking to drivers, by getting them together? The goal was actually to get the drivers to let Uber know that you can't keep dropping the prices to carry on as they are. You need to draw a line here. After months of discussion and persuading some drivers who were nervous about rocking the boat, Hadi and 18 others took a claim to the UK's Employment Tribunal asking to be recognised for what they felt like they were, people working for Uber. Like all the others, he's self-employed. Now he's part of a group taking legal action against the company in what could be a landmark case. Did you ever kind of think that, you know, 
we're just a bunch of ordinary guys and Uber is the biggest company in the world. What hope do we have in getting them to change anything? Like, did, did you ever have that kind of doubt or it just didn't cross your mind? You know, after we organized and we got better organized, we decided to actually take Uber to court on workers' rights. At that time, you'd hear that Uber is worth $40 billion. I'm thinking a bunch of us taking on a 40 billion company to court. Wow, how am I? Then one of the guys had something very important. He says, you know, actually what actually brings big organization down is their arrogance. Many of our drivers have moved from traditional jobs where they had to work prescribed shifts and certain number of hours a week and it was difficult to take time off. And they've chosen to work with Uber because of that flexibility. The fact that you can work literally whenever you want, that's the flexibility that the majority of Uber drivers are really looking and for. The arrogancy here was that you're not willing to listen. Before we actually took them to the tribunal, we went to speak to them. And these people are not interested. They will say, oh, we're quite happy to speak to individual." to explain to you how the system works and so on, but they were never actually wanted to speak to an organized group of drivers. Did you go along to the, the, the tribunal hearings? Did you sort of, were you a part of that? I mean, I'm sure there were lawyers involved in all of it, but like, were you kind of attending those hearings and, and, and you know, trying to be part of it all? Yes, I did attend the hearings and I was also among the drivers actually were on the case from the beginning. It was only 19 of us. When I went to the tribunal, sat down, listening to the tribunal from both team and also from both barristers, I came to realize, like, we were right because those people didn't have no answers. We went to court to tell the judge, this is how we operate and this is how much control they have on us. Are we self-employed or are we workers? The judge came back and said, these people are workers. So that meant our message was out there and one of the biggest courts in the world, I mean, I'm talking about the British judicial system, agreed with us. So we were right. Defeat for Uber, victory for its drivers? Well, we'll see. In a landmark case in London, a tribunal ruled that Uber drivers are in fact workers, not... Hadi and the other drivers won a landmark ruling from the UK's employment tribunal. It's important, meaning that they are entitled to minimum wage and holiday pay. It said that Uber's argument that drivers were running their own businesses and Uber was just a platform that helped them find work, this premise that was the basis of Uber's business model in so many countries was faintly ridiculous. The tens of thousands of people driving for Uber in the UK would now be entitled to just the most basic workers' rights, to be paid a national living wage, to get paid holidays. And it would have implications for the whole gig economy. Hadi was really relieved for lots of reasons, including that he'd been doing a lot of organising from the side of his son's hospital bed. And now he had a little more time to spend with his wife and four kids, including Mohammed, as his cancer was getting more aggressive. I lived the pain and the suffer of my son. Not physical suffering, but the emotional suffer, which haunts me up to today. Uh, sometimes I think like when we used to take him to a local hospital when he had infection and they trying to put a cannula on him, find a vein. And I could remember the pain he was going through, like, because he was so skinny and they 
they couldn't actually drain out the veins because normally they need to drain the vein to see that vein is working. And the doctor would actually, and he would, you know, I still feel the pain that he would say, don't, don't dig, he would say. It's actually really difficult to remember those moments. Normally nowadays, when I go and I, you know, I see the doctor digging, you know, trying to find a vein, I'm thinking, oh my God, he must have gone through so much pain, a little boy, why? I'm thinking, was it worth it for me to put him through all this treatment? But I was just trying to save him, that's all. What else could you have done? I feel very guilty sometimes to even put him through the treatment. He would say to me, Daddy, please don't let me do this. And I said to him, you need to be brave. I think of it, my aim was only to get him to keep going. I didn't want him to give up. He was a young boy. He was not supposed to die. But then, it happened. It happened. Muhammad had his son, died in February 2019. He was 12 years old. Coming up, Uber doesn't take its legal loss lying down and fights back. Uber says it's changed a lot since those early chaotic years at the company. But it's still pushing in lots of places to minimise what it owes its drivers. In California, in 2020, it spent tens of millions of dollars to persuade voters to adopt a law that excluded gig economy drivers from securing rights like the minimum wage, time and a half when they worked overtime, and getting their expenses reimbursed. It's been the same in the UK. Uber didn't just accept the employment tribunal's ruling. Actually, Uber fought this in every courtroom that you could think of and they went from tribunal Uber will appeal the ruling saying to the court of appeal Uber have already said they'll be appealing this latest decision to the Supreme Court Welcome to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom I'm Lord Leggett and I will be giving a short summary of the first judgment to be handed down in the case of Uber BV and others against Aslam and others And you know what was the best thing is that the judgment from the Supreme Court was unanimous. The Supreme Court unanimously dismisses Uber's appeal. And that, I felt I was part of history. For these and other reasons set out much more fully in the judgment, the Employment Tribunal was right to find that Uber drivers are workers. You know, an average person from Somalia, from a deprived background, coming to London, being able to you know, to take a huge corporation to court, very proud of yourself. It was like, yes, we did this. It was a relief. It was like you were holding your breath and suddenly, you know, you come out the show. <sighs> I've made it. And we were right along the way. Economy And the Supreme Court has ruled that drivers do work for Uber. The tech giant's appeal has been dismissed. By the They'd trial. fought Uber to the highest court in the land and won. A month after the judgment, Uber recognised its 70,000 drivers in the UK as workers. 
giving them holiday pay and a guarantee of being paid minimum wage. But Hadi and his union, one that represents app-based drivers and couriers, think Uber is still trying to get away with giving them the bare minimum and pushing for more. They came back into the table with a dollar shot. They only accepted the drivers are workers from POB, meaning passenger on board. But the rest of the time you're waiting, you're not worker. Uber says its drivers are workers, but only when they've actually got customers. In the time they're waiting for a ride or going to collect someone, Uber says they're on their own clock. And for Hadi, that's more than one third of his day. If the day it's bad, or if you had to take a job in a long distance where hardly any work, it could be longer. And when he factors all that time in, he says he's actually earning about five pounds an hour, less than minimum wage. As if, like, let me give you an example. A hospital saying to a nurse that I'm only going to pay you once you have a patient you're treating. But if there's no patient or you're waiting in between or you're going to, to in between other patients, I'm not going to pay you. Simple as that. These days, Hadi is still driving for Uber, waking up early, crisscrossing London, driving through neighbourhoods where he used to spend a lot of time. Not so much anymore. I only cry. I pass by places that I went with him, my son. For example, he used to love to go to uh, eat uh, Nando's chicken, so I used to cycle with him there. I avoid actually driving around those areas, and specifically the place where I avoid the most is Great Ormond Street Hospital. The whole area I tried to avoid because it brings me all those memories. And some of the memories were good. Some of the memories were, you know, difficult. Memories would have been good if I didn't lose him. But losing him, it's trying to avoid the whole place, basically. So what happens if you get an Uber ride that wants you to go to that area? I don't take it. Seriously, I don't take it. Economic conditions around the world are really tough for everyone right now, including tech companies. A few months ago, Uber's CEO said the company would need to tighten its belt and focus on becoming profitable, finding a business model that worked. For drivers like Hadi, already paying a lot more just to fuel their cars, that's worrying. Even last year and this year, the fares are not the same. They have increased from the customer, but they have dropped on my side. This time, both have been squeezed, customer and the driver. Look, I would wake up at 5 o'clock. By 6, quarter to 6, I'm out. And I don't get back home until 6, half 6. Yesterday, I actually went back home. 8. On Wednesday, I went back home. 9. And I was tired. And so what's the current status of your campaign? What are you fighting for now from Uber? What do you want from them? A lot of things we want from them. We want them to give us our data. We want a better pay or a better fare. And we want them to listen to the drivers. We want them to end unfair dismissal. We want them to have, you know, more interaction with the drivers to understand the pain of the driver and the struggle the driver goes through every day. But in fact, it's just an exploitation that actually it's happening within Uber. Why do you think Uber is fighting so hard against these things you're asking for? These things, you know, that seem like simple, seem like not too much to ask, that when you're waiting around for a ride, 
that should be considered work time. What is it about Uber that you think makes them so resistant to agreeing to, to these kinds of things? Michael, simple, greed. Maximize the profit. And also, you don't have laws and regulation that forces them to do that. They won't care less. They won't do it. The burden here, it's up to the regulators and the government to take action. As long as the government and the regulators are turning a blind eye on what's happening to their citizens, these people will just squeeze them. Why do you think it happened that way? Why do you think we're in a situation where Uber was able to grow the way it was and regulators did not step in to protect drivers, to make basic protections a part of the package? I think there must be, um, how shall I put it, uh, consultancy that, you know, relays this thing within the government and the government turn a blind eye to this. What do you mean consultancy? They must have, you know, consultancy that lobby for them. Lobbying? Yes. People listening to this might think, Hadzi, this company's given you so many headaches. You've given them a lot of headaches too, but they've given you a lot of headaches. Why are you still working for them? Why not just leave and find something else to do? I'm 44 years old, and I have been doing this for quite a long time. I couldn't think of anything that I... I mean, start the whole thing again from beginning, it's quite tough. Uh, you know, it feels good to go and fight for others and fight for your right. Even if you get it slowly and slowly, but it feels a lot better, trust me. I feel very proud, feels nice. Also, the Supreme Court has given us that push that I feel I was right from day one and I'm not going to stop, I'm just going to carry on to as long as it takes. Hadi, thank you so much for speaking to us. You're welcome. Anytime. Thank you. That was Abdurzak Hadi, an Uber driver and union organiser from London. Thanks very much to him. You can read more about this story at theguardian.com. We put the issues raised in this episode to Uber. In a statement, it admitted to mistakes and missteps, but said it had been transformed under the leadership of its current chief executive, Dara Khosrowshahi. A spokesperson for the company said, with demand up following the pandemic, Uber drivers are earning more than ever. In the first quarter of 2022, they earned on average £29.72, pence, including holiday pay, when actively engaged on the app. The combination of higher earnings, new protections such as holiday pay and trade union recognition in the UK has led to more than 10,000 new drivers signing up with Uber in recent months. Since March 2021, when Uber recognised its drivers as workers, it said eligible drivers have received over £100 million in pension contributions and £185.5 million in holiday pay. Uber says it now facilitates insurance for drivers, covering them for life-changing events such as injury, sickness or having a baby. Uber also disputed that initial large subsidies, followed by inevitable cuts, was an inherent part of its business model for expansion. You can read full responses from Uber at theguardian.com. The reporting team behind the Uber files includes Paul Lewis, Simon Goodley, Harry Davies, Felicity Lawrence and David Pegg. Fearless investigative journalism makes for a fairer world, At The Guardian, our independence allows us to chase the truth wherever it takes us. With no shareholders or billionaire owner, we're free to shed light on corruption, injustice and incompetence. Our months-long probe into Uber is just the latest in a succession of investigations, from the Snowden revelations to the Cambridge Analytica scandal and Facebook exposés. 
The Guardian has a long track record of exposing how technology can abuse democracy and human rights. And we provide all of this for free for everyone to read and listen. We do this because we believe in information equality. Greater numbers of people can keep track of global events shaping our world, understanding their impact on people and communities, and become inspired to take meaningful action. Millions can benefit from open access to quality, truthful news, regardless of their ability to pay for it. If you want to help us do more projects like the Uber Files in the future, invest in The Guardian's investigative journalism today at theguardian.com forward slash contribute. That's theguardian.com forward slash contribute. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent and Rose DeLarabiti. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Nicole Jackson. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.